When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Australian target to 19. Bowl him. It's all over. And it is one of the most fantastic victories ever known in Test cricket history. Bob Willis, eight wickets. A fabulous performance. England have won this match after one of the most astonishing fightbacks you can ever see. Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and that little bit of commentary there will just take you back to a wonderful day in the life of a man we've now lost, one of England's greatest cricketers, Bob Willis of course, and it's a sad week actually because he was an iconic figure both on and off the field, Simon. Well, magnificent bowler, fantastic bowler for England, 325 wickets, part of that the old firm, really, if you like, of, of Bothman Willis, and that's a new firm now, although they're getting a bit older, Anderson yeah. and Broad. And then, of course, he made the transition after playing and being extremely successful as a, a player into the commentary box and into the television studio as well. And that's in, of late, obviously, that's where he was, he was really prominent. And you know, the verdict with Bob Willis on Sky in the evening was uh, required viewing, mainly because it was just funny just to see... Bob just take people down. I mean, I, I, unless you were the subject well, of his ire. Of well, that's that, that's true. But I think he obviously he cared about English cricket. That was the thing, mm. and and he he sort of knew what he was doing. I mean, it was done in a knowing way. It must have been hard if you were the player or players who were being taken down. But it was it, it, it actually it was cult viewing. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Well, we'll reflect on his life in a little bit. Also on this podcast, we're going to look ahead to England's tour of South Africa with the squad that has been announced and also look at the crisis that is going on in South African cricket, which really has reached its nadir in the last few days. And we've got an interview with Neil Manthorpe, the very prominent South African journalist, talking about that whole issue. Bob Willis, I, I played against him a little bit and... 
Actually, just looking at that footage of that amazing 8 for 43 at Headingley, it reminded me of two things about him, actually. One was this sort of amazingly uh, rampaging run-up, mm. you know, tearing down the hill from the Kirksall Lane end, no holes barred. And I always thought of him as being someone who had very open-chested action and you thought was very wide of the crease. This is a technical point. Actually, he was quite close to the stumps. And that made his short ball very hard to avoid, very direct, which is why he was so effective that day. The other thing about his his run-up and his whole sort of demeanour, there was just a little noise before he let go of the ball. And that was, you might think it was a grunt or something, but actually it was the smack of his front foot. His front foot, you know, hit the ground really hard just before he let go of the ball. And that was all that impact of his run-up and his delivery and his huge kind of body action put into that one landing at the crease. And, you know, in a way you could see, A, why he was so consistently good because of that impact that he had uh, the 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 anchoring of his front foot that enabled his body to, to propel that ball and also why his knees were so ruined mm. because as I'm you know speaking from experience the number of times you whack your, your foot down like that has a you know it sends shock waves through your body and does make a, a real mess of your knees and the fact that he was able to do that over 17,000 times for England in his career, which enabled him to take the 325 test wickets, was a phenomenal effort of resilience and determination, as well as the, the skill of, of getting the ball in the right place often enough. How fast was he? Fast. Really fast. I mean, I think he's the greatest fast bowler of my and his generation. I mean, he's 10 years older than me, but that generation... Freddie Flintoff would, would have been as quick. Um, obviously, he was sort of... I, th- I see him as the next generation. Darren Goff as well. But from that era, he was head and shoulders, both in terms of height and speed, ahead of anybody else. He would be up there with... You know, if you look at the, the England's fastest bowls that have ever lived that played consistently, Lar would probably not quite as quick as Tyson. Tyson probably the quickest. Willis not far behind. Flintoff, similar... Harmison occasionally that quick. So those those men, I'd say, and obviously now we've got Jaffra Archer, who I think is in that league. So we've probably had five. Truman, you know, people say, well, what about Fred Truman? Fred Truman had his moments when he was rapid, but I think Willis, with his height as well, had that extra ingredient. Mm. And we talk about Botham's ashes, but without Bob Willis at, at Headingley in, in 1981... Nothing would have been possible. That remarkable uh, last day of the match and a, that that delivery when he got Ray Bright bold middle stump Willis sort of like whirring round and arms in the air and then sort of sprinting off as well. Yeah. And, and it, it was almost as if he was in a, in, in a daze. He bowled that spell in some sort of daze or dr- on drugs or something. I mean, it, it looked yeah. I mean, he looked like a man possessed. And again, I think he got into the zone really effectively. He was able to, and, and you know, that's probably we can come on to his punditry. But he got into the zone as a pundit as well, didn't he? And he had those sort of missions to explain something or, or you know, kind of criticise whatever it was. Um, the, the, I think the, the other thing about him was he was just a total team man, and he would do anything for the team. And I, I'll give you a sort of quite funny story about that. I uh, played against him a couple of times, as I said, and actually this came out, his devotion to the team, oddly came out with the bat. He wasn't a very good batsman. In fact, he was 
pretty hopeless. He, he was quite uncoordinated. But there was this one game um, I recall playing at Lords, and it was late summer, and we'd had a lot of rain, and the pitch was really wet and sticky. It was drying, and it was turning square. It was turning the most the most I've ever seen a pitch turn. It was turning miles. If you look up the records, actually, it's 1981, uh, Middlesex, Warwickshire. The 19 of the 20 Warwickshire wickets were taken by Embry and Edmonds, and the other wicket was a run out. Uh, I didn't. I bowled three overs in each innings, I think, something like that, because the ball was turning so much. Bob Willis came in at number eight to face Philip. Number eight, I know, yes. Your, your uh, yeah. astonishment is, is justified. Number eight, I know. Came in at number eight. That doesn't say a lot for the people. I know, <laughs> who's batting down. nine, ten, eleven? <laughs> well, Dilip Doshi was, right. was number eleven, who was an absolute rabbit. Uh, a couple of other people, obviously not too good. The ball was, as I say, turning from sort of leg... Philip Edmonds bowling left arm spin was turning leg to missing off, and the keeper was sort of taking it over his shoulder, sort of thing outside the off stump. And we had two slips in a gully. Bob Willis had a bat that summer called a run reaper, <laughs> which caused a bit of mirth it, it, just, at the, just at the start, you know, seeing him come out. The run reaper was a bat made by Duncan Fernley who, in his wisdom, decided to make a bat, or design a bat anyway, with lots of holes in it. Literally, lots of it. It was punctured. It looked like it had been strafed by a machine gun. Really? Yeah. And uh, the idea of it was to help, in theory, aerodynamics. So you could swing it easier because of the wind that came through the holes, right? So it was lighter, technically. I don't know if that was ever proved, but that was the idea. And Bob Willis was the one guy (laughs) kind of earmarked to try this bat out. In a way, it was never going to be a proof of whether it worked or not because he didn't last long enough in mm. innings to, to really prove it. But particularly this innings was quite an interesting approach because we were chuckling away seeing him come out at number eight with this run reaper bat with a batting average of about 12. Um, what he did then was he took guard, as you do, with his bat side on, so sort of, you know, two legs or whatever it is, with your bat held with the edge pointing down the wicket to the umpire, took guard... And then continued to bat with his bat like that. And we looked at him and said, you know, Bob, there was a few men round the bat. So there was a bit of comment going on. It was like, Bob, you got your bat. You know, haven't you batted before? You know, you're supposed to have your face over the bat facing down the pitch. No, no, he's going to face it with his edge. And he played with the edge of the bat. The theory uh, being that he had less chance of, of edging the ball playing with just a what effectively was a stump width right. blade, yeah. it worked. We couldn't get him out. In both innings, he scored, I think, 11, but in about 45 minutes. Yeah. And he, so he played the line of the ball to Edmonds, and the ball would pitch leg stump and bounce viciously, and other people had been gloving it yeah. and you know, edging it to slip. Yeah. He kept missing it, and the wicketkeeper would be taking it over his shoulder. And we couldn't get him out. And then when Edmonds bowled full at the stumps, tried to bowl a Yorker, he brought the blade down with the edge front on and, and managed to keep it out. And it all skewed off for runs. And, you know, our sort of laughter and, and you know, piss-taking kind of turned to sort of bewilderment and then actually frustration because we, we couldn't get him out playing this way. And he did it just for the team. And he did it in both innings. And, and you know, it, we laughed at him, but he was absolutely deadpan. He, he kept on with it. And it sort of worked. Bob Willis's first-class average, 14.3 with 
two half centuries and a higher score of 72. How, how he got an average of 14, <laughs> God knows, really. I mean, he had a big reach and he had a sort of uncomplicated swish outside off stump. But, yeah, that was about all. And he played 128 test match innings and his highest score was 28 not out. Yeah. He, he, yeah he... But, but one of his, of course, one of his greatest test innings was the partnership with Ian Botham at Headingley of 37 for the last wicket in that great 81 test match, which got England that lead of 120-odd. Um, Willis made two in that partnership, but it, it vitally kept the Aussies out there that bit longer and enabled both of them to get another 20-odd runs. First memories of Bob, mine were actually way, well before I was in the media, being a student in Birmingham and seeing Bob on the streets most mornings, actually, or quite regularly when he wasn't playing, you know, padding, padding around the streets in his tracksuit, getting himself fit to bowl. And which, I mean, obviously worked brilliantly for him. He'd had knee operations and things and had to do that to keep going. Uh, but his, his commitment to the cause and just, you know, the daily pain you, you suffer as a fast bowler, which, I mean, I had plenty of it, but him, you know, with that spindly body and that sort of huge physique and the... The, the pressure he put on his body every time he bowled with that great long run-up. and we, Everyone called him Goose, of course, because he looked like a goose trying to take off yeah, when yeah. he was running running to the wicket. Everybody mimicked him. Gooch, I remember Graham Gooch, was one of the first who was very good at mimic mimicking Bob Willis's action. I think Mark Ramprakash's impression was as good as anybody's, actually. Alistair Cook did one as well. Yeah, he it? got a wicket, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, I was there at Trent Bridge against India. Yeah, his only, his only test wicket. And, and it shows, it was, that's an interesting point, because in a way, uh, Alistair Cook was born just after Willis retired, 1984. So it shows how Willis's legacy continued, even though people hadn't grown up with him. His reputation, you know, went, went beyond even his own generation to the next generation of people who were familiar with him, even though they never saw him play or anything. Yeah. What about Bob's transformation from, from player to commentator, pundit? Because when he was playing, he, I, I remember interviews with him that were quite, you know, that, oh, he didn't like the criticism, did he, uh, uh, that, that was around at the time for, for England players. Uh, and he, he, he wasn't the most fluent in, in interviews they, they were, they were, his answers were, were quite short there was an interview he gave Peter West didn't he, at Headingley which, which was you know, in a way quite grudging well he, he, was, he had a go at the press yeah. actually mm. I mean I think as a pundit what he was brilliant at was, was in a way almost voicing what the man in the street thought mm. you know uh, rather than making excuses for players and seeing it from the players' point of view. I think he saw it from the public's point of view and made mostly valid criticisms. At times, they're a bit too uh, vehement, I suppose. But there was always, even though he had that sort of rather monotone delivery and not very expressive, I think there was always just a little, tiny little bit of humour behind it. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think I think it was. He knew what he, he knew exactly what he was doing, don't you think? He that that sort of turn to the camera, that sort of lugubrious manner. He was just gradually, ever so subtly, with that voice of his, dismantling England's uh, latest performance. Let's listen to a bit of Bob on the verdict when England were bounced out by India on the final day at Lords in two thousand and fourteen. Think of all the horror 
movies you can, Charles. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, very Rocky Horror Show, Dracula, Frankenstein's Monster. Uh, this was unbelievable. I've seen fewer hookers in Soho on a Saturday night than I saw at Lord's this afternoon. And the uh, dunce's cap was going around the England dressing room uh, quicker than past the parcel. No sooner was it on Matt Pryor's ball pate that it was whipped off by the ginger nut Stokes and then quickly settled on the cherubic noggin of Joe Root. So uh, it was an absolute shambles. Of course, you don't want to be the subject of, of his ire, do you? And uh, I'm sure there have been plenty of players who felt really aggrieved at the mm. kind of things that Willis said. Um, uh, no holes barred. I mean, in a way, he was a pundit like he was a bowler. You know, very direct, quite aggressive, sort of hostile, but passionate and, and the game at the heart was the thing that he cared about the most. Mm. And uh, so even if he was unwavering, unyielding, at times uncompromising with his punditry, it was because he cared, ultimately. For, uh, he wanted England to do well. He didn't play as much for Warwickshire as the Warwickshire members and Warwickshire support uh, would have liked. And there was a feeling that he saved himself a bit for England. Yeah, I, I think it was inevitable. I mean, if you think about... Uh, 325 test wickets, and he had to play for Warwickshire as well. Look at the, the state of players like Anderson and Broad now who are able to carry on probably potentially longer. Central contracts. Because of central contracts, mm. and they don't have to... They, they barely play for their counties. I mean, mm. certainly Anderson barely plays for Lancashire. Obviously, there is more uh, sort of training and drills and uh, preparation required for a test player now than in Bob Willis's day. But to be able to play for your county as well as your country as a fast bowler was tough. So inevitably, he did rein back a little bit at, at county level. Um, I, I just there was this one classic story which people often tell about him when he was playing for Warwickshire. And he had no ball trouble. He he often used to overstep the line, which is another reason I sort of sympathise with him because I did as well. And anyway, so he was bowling one day at Edgebaston and he was overstepping constantly and not having a huge amount of success that particular day. And after about the 15th no ball, he was walking back to his mark and some chap in the Eric Holly stand, some local man, was sort of, boy, Willis, why can't you keep your foot behind the line, Willis? Like this. And, and Willis just stared across towards the, at, the, at the Holly stand and just said, why don't you... Bleep off and build a car. And, I mean, everybody just fell about laughing, but he was actually steadfast in walking back to his mark and running in again. I think it was the deadpan humour that worked so well in his punditry, actually. That, that, I, I, again, it was just that, that, that knowing look that you, you knew exactly uh, what he was doing. Um, I, I'll, I'll miss him on the verdict oh, really yes. well. Yeah, I, I mean, he'd be a huge loss. Um, his contribution to England was immense, and and his contribution to to the world of TV sport also was immense. It's fantastic to have two yeah. so, so successful to careers. And I think that in a way he gave a lot of us as commentators the confidence to speak our minds. He was brave mm. in what he said, and we you know quite often others of us or people working with him sort of hid behind him. Yeah. But he was very forthright. And uh, he made that program a compelling watch, yeah. and it's it, he's been rudely denied living into old age yeah. because seventy is far too young for a, for a man of that stature and skill and and passion to be 
to be removed from us. Yeah, and that's a very good point actually about that idea of sort of hiding behind him because it was all it was that sort of idea of oh, yeah get Bob in, wind him up, let him go, and then and everybody else doesn't have to sort of get involved in all that. And you, you I'm sure you you must be conscious that the players are watching in the evening. You, know, you get I don't know you get back to your hotel room. You, you, you get your remote control out, you turn on the TV, there's the verdict on Sky Sports, we, you know, you, I don't know whether players do that or whether they shun, shun media completely after a bad day, but there must be that temptation and, and there's Bob in, in full sail uh, taking it on and, and banksing players out, basically. Yeah, a really, really sad week and for me, sort of part of my childhood's gone there because I grew up watching him. Right, England have named their squad for their tour of South Africa. A quick turnaround, barely back from New Zealand, barely a chance to get over the jet lag and off to South Africa at the end of the week. By the way, I notice you've got the trousers on now, so you have actually <laughs> finally given up the shorts and you'll have to stick with that for a while now. Well, it is, well, it is December. Um, yeah, back from New Zealand and, and, and quick turnaround, straight off to South Africa, squad announced... At the weekend, uh, Jimmy Anderson back in the squad, Mark Wood, uh, Johnny Bairstow back in the squad. Uh, they, they took uh, Mahmood and Parkinson to South Africa and Sibley and Crawley. And both those two stay, the two batsmen. But Taki Mahmood has gone already, but you know, barely played on the toy, played in the, in the T20 matches. A few of the T20 matches didn't play uh, much of a, a part in the uh, Red Bull part of the tour. And, and Parkinson, ditto. But he stays in. Moen Ali stays out. Two years out from the Ashes, a year out from India. I mean, I do worry for England overseas, not so much in South Africa. Although I think there's a lot of expectation that they're going to go there and win. And I don't know. They have had good times in South Africa. It seems to suit their game uh, for some reason. South Africa are on a, a low at the moment, as we'll we'll discuss in a moment. But. I don't know whether there's a bit too much expectation about this England side. They're, they're fallible. They have still got you know, problems at the top of the order. The bowlers are struggling to take wickets overseas with the the Kookaburra ball. What about the spin attack? They didn't play a spinner in their last Test match. Is that sustainable? Uh, you know, as the into the future, you know, you, you'll need a good spinner in in Australia. You'll definitely need spinners in Sri Lanka and two or three next winter in in India. It seems as if. They're attempting to solve some of the problems, certainly at the top of the order, but there are no obvious solutions at the moment. They just seem to be a team that is reasonably well set up to win at home, but away from home, it's hard. I think it's hard to see fortunes turning. I think they probably will win in South Africa for reasons that we'll come on to in a minute, but I agree with you about the, the sort of future planning, and I think it feels like a team that constantly gets sort of patched up and sent out again, and rather than this plan for, you know, if we just think about India and and Australia, the two big tours to come the next two years, you need definitely in India some good spinners. And I don't see Jack Leach really being the answer, although I'm sure he'll do a a perfectly acceptable job, but you need someone with a bit more wicket-taking ability. And in Australia, they're going to need tall, fast bowlers, not... I can't see Anderson and Broad taking wickets in Australia in two years' time, even if they are still fit. I don't think they've got the, the skills to take the wickets now in dropping on drop-in pitches with the Kookaburra ball in Australia. So uh, I, I worry about that. I, I want to see 
somebody new coming through, who that is, it, it's difficult to identify. Well, isn't, isn't that the problem? Isn't that the problem? I mean, why did, I would have given Saqib Mahmood a, a go in in New Zealand, see how he went. I, I think it, there's nothing to lose. They'd lost the first test, or maybe they should have given him a go in the first test. Anyway, I, I would have taken him on this tour to South Africa and, and tried to blood him there. Yeah, well, they've, they've gone back to bowlers they're familiar with. I mean, Wood... Mark Wood is a potentially... Yeah. Good, I See, again, I, I'm not sure that Mark Wood will take wickets in Australia either because he's too short. You, you look, at, look at Australia's fast attack. Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood, Pat Cummins. They're all six foot three and higher and they all bowl 88 to 92 miles an hour. I can't see bowlers of little seamers. I'm sorry to say, you know, Anderson is a little seamer. He's not little... He's not really a seamer, I suppose. He's a swinger. But I can't see bowlers like that taking wickets there now. Um, they're, 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 their pitches have changed. from You know, 2010-11, England won in, in Australia brilliantly with Tim Bresnan and, and Anderson, obviously. Uh, Chris Tremlett played a, played a role in that as well. But those pitches are different from now. They were nibbly pitches. They're not anymore. Mm. Yeah, well... <laughs> It's not easy to see England's a smooth path for England uh, to the Ashes. They've sort of stated that's their goal to win back the Ashes in in two years' time. At the moment, it, it's not obvious how they're going to better do it with the personnel that they've got. You have a sort of sense that they are, you know, you've got to take the series that's in front of you. Of course, you have South Africa first, and then uh, Sri Lanka, completely different challenges. But you also have to have what's a a clear plan as well and it's all very well to say there's the plan to win in Australia in two years time but it's not obvious that where the personnel is to, to do that and perhaps they're just hoping that as time goes on someone will emerge I mean that but that's not that's not a great plan I know they're working with and you know, they have spin bowling camps don't they and they have pace bowling camps and they're working with some of the younger spinners. and the Lions are on tour exactly so. and they're working with the you mm. know they are trying to find yeah, exactly, but if they're not if they're not there, yeah. if the mm. game if the if the the system is not producing them, mm. then what can you do? In a way, you I suppose you do have to go back to the the tried and tested and hope it will work. But our, you know our memories are of England having really difficult times in in India and Australia. I mean, they are such difficult places to conquer now, especially with the personnel that that England have. So England go to South Africa shortly and the, fir- the first test is the 26th of December at Centurion, unusually, because it's normally Durban, isn't it, that first test? Where England do have a great advantage is that South African cricket is in total crisis. I've never seen before a, a situation like this in in any international team, actually, where the, the board are totally discredited, uh, where everybody wants the board removed, where the debts are massive, uh, the there's no selection committee or director of cricket. Well, we don't even know who's selecting the side. Exactly. So uh, I feel a bit sorry for Faf du Plessis. And I, I feel sorry for a lot of the South African cricketers, actually, because they're in the middle of playing in this their T20 tournament, the Umzanzi Super League. And to all reports and things, the odd thing that I've seen of it as well, it's actually quite a good tournament. There's some quite really good cricket played and the players are absolutely giving it their all but it hasn't been very well marketed there's hardly anybody watching it and it's in massive debt as is South African cricket generally it's reached an absolutely peak stage now where the chief executive of Cricket South Africa is a guy called Tabang Murrow he's been in charge for a year and a half Uh, he has caused all sorts of unrest 
with the players' union and with just generally the public. A lot of journalists have been calling for him to be removed or to resign. It culminated in five journalists having their accreditation Mm. removed because they were critical of him and his board. It's a classic case of megalomania, of someone just sort of running the roost himself without much consultation with anybody else, to the extent where, I'll give you an example of this, uh, one of the disputes going on has been the players who haven't been, been paid for some work they did on last year's Mzanzi Super League. They're owed quite a lot of money for their commitment to various promotions. And uh, when they complained about it, three people were suspended from the board, Corrie Van Sale and Clive Eckstein, who are sort of director of cricket and marketing, and the chief, and the chief selector as well. They were sacked for supposed dereliction of duty. In other words, not satisfying these payments to the players and it turned out the only person who had signature rights on the checks was Tabang Moreau the the chief executive so everything points back to him and now he has been suspended pending sort of further investigation one of the guys who's been really on this case throughout has been Neil Manthorpe the very well-known broadcaster and writer on South African cricket so I talked to him about his take on it all The board, the CSA appointees, are just catatonic. They can't believe that this is all going to go wrong um, for them. I mean, they've been carefully planning this with Nenzani and Moreau for for years. And uh, now their whiskers are in the cream and suddenly it's all going wrong and they just can't can't face it. Tabang Moreau and the president both need to step down. Graham Smith is, is prepared to take the job on. He would be a really good director of cricket. He needs to be appointed. He then needs to appoint a coaching team and just get get the confidence back of the players. And if they've made appointments like that, that it would be a, an almost instant restoration of confidence and sponsors would come back. But they've just been gradually, one by one, not renewing their, their contracts, not renewing their deals. I mean, there's... None of the domestic competitions are sponsored. You know, it's the CSA four-day competition, the CSA one-day competition, it's the CSA provincial competition. There's no sponsors, none of them. I mean, that's why we're heading towards a billion rand debt and bankruptcy within two years. So that was Neil Manthorpe. Uh, It's reached ahead this weekend with a, a special meeting and a presentation at which... As I say, Tabang Moreau was suspended. They've brought in another individual, Jack Fole, as their temporary chief executive while they try and find a permanent person. And also, they've announced that there's a very strong likelihood that Graham Smith will take over as director of cricket, and that is much needed because they've got two weeks to prepare for the England tour. Well, it sounds as if they're they're beginning to get themselves sorted out, but whether you can do that in, in such a short space of time remains to be seen. As you mentioned, they've still got a lot of very talented cricketers, albeit that you know there is a bit of a player drain as well, and they've lost players. I was did an interview with Tatenda Taibu in the summer. He was pr- promoting his new book, and he was talking about Zimbabwean cricket. And one thing he said in the interview, which really struck me at the time, he said, what happened in Zimbabwe cricket could happen in, in South African cricket. And what I thought of that, actually, that interview, when I heard about the, the problems in, in the last few weeks that South African cricket has faced, normally South African series, England, South Africa, either home or away, is, is compelling viewing, actually. It, it, it's great to be there and watch it. Uh, the weather is normally fantastic. The pitches are quite good. 
the crowds are good as well. Lots of England supporters go to watch. It creates a, a good atmosphere. It's normally a, an excellent series. I hope it's the same. Um, but you know, but there's still. I mean, there's some quality there. I mean, England. Well, well, I, well they will not go there complacent. Of course, they will. No. They can't be complacent. I mean, they're... there's some quality bowling. Mm. I'm not sure about the batting. Well, they've got really. Dean Elgar. They've got Duplessis. Yeah, I, but they haven't got a lot. I mean, Adrian, Aiden Markham's a good player, yeah. but I, I mean, you know, there's there's not that much. You know, lost obviously lost Hashim Amla yeah. to retirement recently. AB de Villiers yeah. before that. It's not the formidable no, side. No Dale Stain no. either. He's retired. No. So you know they've lost three. Morning Morkels now a yeah. cold pack playing for Surrey. So you know they're not the team they were five years ago. And actually, if you look at their record, I mean this season, this year they've lost all the Test matches they've yeah. played. They lost two Test matches to Sri Lanka at home. And that's the first time they've lost a series to an Asian team at home ever. Yeah, and of course they got well beaten in India as well. Mind you, there'll be a few teams that that will happen to, and there's a, the, the team that's heading to South Africa. I think will be well beaten in India. Yeah, uh, next I mean, year. you know, from a practical point of view, South Africa they having uh, having lost all these Test matches this year, they've also got no real time to prepare for the England series because, they, as I say, they've been playing in the T Twenty League. Yeah. They've got one round of red ball cricket, provincial first-class cricket, and then straight into the Test Series. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, they're, they're, they're tough, though, aren't they? They are South tough, they're, and they've got know, their own conditions, and also, they, also, in a way, that they're, they're, they'll, if they're underdogs, they've got, they'll have a cause to, to fight for. And England, clearly, they've got some quality in their side, you know, Root and Stokes and Archer, etc. Uh, but they're, they're also vulnerable as well, and there's no real indication in New Zealand that they've solved some of the problems that have beset them over the last few years. It would be a fascinating series, actually. Um, and I don't think it will be as straightforward for England as some people are suggesting. I think, I think most people, I, I get the feeling that most people expect England to go to Africa and win. But who knows? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's uncertain, partly because England are just a, a fragile team who haven't got much backbone with the batting at the top of the order yet. Mm. I think it's it's gradually coming together, but still there are holes there. And have they got the bowling attack to, to take wickets on flat pitches? At, at least it's augmented by the, the experience of Anderson and Broad and, and, and the pace of Wood. So it looks a better attack than they had in New Zealand, but they're going to probably have to work hard because the batting order might not make enough runs. Mm. Well, if people get fit. Um, Mark Wood's not going to be fit at the start, is he? They reckon he'll be fit as the series uh, goes on. That's the hope, anyway. Um, Jimmy Anderson, we, we don't know, big question mark. He, he hasn't bowled for, for, for months and months and months. There are lots of question marks against England's lineup as well as South Africa's lineup. Yeah, and I, I just hope, actually, that, that South Africa get it together because we, we, you know, we need them Absolutely. as a, a very important cog in the whole kind of machine of international cricket. They had a poor World Cup. They, they've been losing a lot of players to other countries. They still have an amazing number of coaches around the world who are very successful. But the playing, they need to play well to convince everybody that they're worth watching. Well, it all starts on Boxing Day. And we've got a couple of warm-up games before then. Uh, one first-class match and one uh, two-day game. So not much preparation time. And then straight on to Boxing Day and, and Centurion. Let's hope the thunderstorms stay away. So a feature of going to that ground. The thunderstorms build up in the evening. Uh, no Durban Test match uh, this time. Four games and then three T20s. And three one-day internationals. Actually, and the one-day internationals 
that come up actually before the T20s. First time that England will have played a one-day international since the World Cup final. So that's it for this week. Uh, don't forget the special offer on the Cricketer magazine, Christmas issue, thecricketer.com forward slash Christmas. Very, very good offer with a £20 John Lewis voucher or a signed copy of Alistair Cook's autobiography, which could be a useful Christmas present for someone. Have a good week. We'll speak to you next time. Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.